Welcome to State Road 49, an audio program that shares extraordinary stories of everyday people. I'm your host, Aaron Freimberg, and we'd like to thank you for coming back. Today's episode is from Eric Nicholson about his sister Annie and the events that happened 25 years ago. Just a fair warning, this one deals with domestic abuse and ends in violence. That being said, we don't want to discourage you from listening. We feel it's a beautiful and touching story. We just wanted to let you know. And here we go. Domestic violence is one of the things that it knows no race, education level, class status. It can affect anyone in any sort of environment. But I think if there's a broad brush to be painted, it starts with the controlling aspect. It involves controlling people's, I would say it's always first their actions. There's always rules set forth. You can do this, you can do that. You can't talk to this person, you can talk to this person. Um, but then it, it turns into the more psychological um, control and abuse and you start attacking the way someone feels and dictating how they should feel. It just progresses on and on. I am not an expert in the field of domestic violence or anything else like that, but when the psychological or the verbal abuse doesn't work, that's when it gets physical. And that's what happened in my sister's case. We knew from the story that she had told us and and other stories that he was a real threat. And no matter what was being said, you know, she had made up her mind that she was not going back. And as soon as the, like I said, the, the, the thought of reconciliation or the idea of getting back together, he knew that was over. That's when it became a lot more uh, threatening and uh, a violent situation. Well, set the table that, uh, you know, I was kind of a a whoopsie baby when it came along, or a blessing if you talk to my parents. Um, My sister was 12 years older than me when I was born. My brother was 15 years older than me. And uh, my brother was kind of indifferent to me coming into this world, but my sister, um, she took me as her own. She wanted the crib in her room. She, She treated me like her son for as long as I can remember. So that kind of sets the stage to our relationship. We always had a very special relationship, very tight relationship, and and while we didn't share rooms at all, it was as much brother-sister as it was kind of mother-son in in a a great way, uh, holding me accountable, always looking up to her, things like that. Looking back, I can put things through the prism as as she was as a much older person, but I didn't, I didn't realize how much time she spent with me. Um, with that 12 years age difference, the sports, she would consistently play with me, um, teaching me how to do things, you know, she didn't have to do that looking back, but I grew up with not knowing anything different. And uh, it was just natural, that was a relationship we had. So we found whatever, we were both very athletic, very competitive, and uh, that, carried over in everything that we did, whether it be golf or basketball or track or anything else like that. That's what we did. 
she was only like five foot two, maybe five foot one, um, but she was very competitive, very athletic. And uh, so when she went, she went to Morgan Township, and she was all conference volleyball, all conference basketball. By the time she left her senior year, um, she set the single game, single season career scoring record at Morgan. She was the Vidette Messenger at the time's uh, Player of the Year. Um, in in tiny Morgan Township at the time, she was the uh, fourth fourth team All State player. So that yeah, she was she was an amazing athlete. She won the not only just that, but she won the Mental Attitude Award for the county and things like that. So no, she was she was your All American girl. Her name was Ann Nicholson, but everyone that knew her knew her by Annie. I'd say the most involved parents you can imagine of attending every single athletic sporting event, uh, getting us to practice on time. All, all three of us were in sports, and uh, I look back on it considering their involvement at Morgan Township started when my brother was in, I think, first grade or second grade, and then lasted till I graduated in 98. So when she was in college, she went to Purdue to pursue organizational leadership, and uh, she had an internship at the Westville Correctional Center. And uh, while she was there, she met a guy, and they talked, kind of hung out a little bit. And then towards the end of her senior year at Purdue, they did start dating. And uh, he had been in a previous relationship. He had a daughter uh, who was quite young at the time. And... Uh, they ended up hitting it off, and he had a love of sports as well and kind of a connecting thing and hit it off, started dating, and the relationship took off pretty quickly, especially in today's day and age. Do you remember meeting him for the yeah, first time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know about the first time, but I, I remember I have I had good memories of him. Okay. Um, we'd play video games. We would do sports together, golf, pool, things of that nature. Um, you know, as at the time I was 10, 11, 12, and that age, um, no different than anyone else you, you would have met off the street. He was a correctional officer. He had served in the Army Reserves and uh, settled in Westville at the, uh, at the Correctional Center as an officer. They weren't friends for too long. They went into dating fairly quickly. I would say they dated less than a year before becoming engaged and uh, probably engaged for around a year before they got married. So it, by today's standards, a pretty quick romance, but not a week, no eloping or anything. In the moment, I didn't ever know anything different. From the outside, the marriage looked more than fine. Um, she had a great career, and he was a correctional officer, and uh, everything was going well, but kind of behind the scenes, um, there was some, it always starts with, you know, verbal abuse, kind of a uh, mental, emotional abuse, and uh, that it went on for a while. He was very controlling, and uh, a lot of the traits of that involves trying to distance someone from their family, distance them from their friends, um, and that kind of controlling aspect. And that was going on. It wasn't very effective as far as our family because we were very tight and we lived close. Um, so some of those signs became more prominent as things got worse and worse. I had no knowledge of it, but mind you, I was shielded from my parents at the time I was young. And at the time, it was different. The, the awareness 
the, was not the same as it is now. And there's this idea of shame behind it. Of Not that anyone ever thinks that they did something to deserve the act of when it happened, but a lot of times victims feel like they put themselves in this situation, that the victims feel like it's their fault that they're in this situation, not because of the one singular act here or there. Um, so it's, there is a sense of shame, and that's, that's the unfortunate part. There's so many things tied, whether it be relationship, family. A lot of times it's uh, economic control. People usually say, well, why don't you just leave them when that close to final act happens, when something gets violent. But the, the seeds have been sown for years and years before that. And, uh, you know, it, for one, it, it can be like the Stockholm Syndrome where, where you, you start to sympathize or you are trying to appease your abuser. No one goes out on a first date and their first date gets violent and then they stick around for the next five years. It, it doesn't happen like that. But I think that's what people who are unaware, that's what they put through their, their prism, their filter of, oh, if someone hit me, I'd leave. Of course you would, but if you had five years, if you have children with that person, um, there's a lot of factors that go into why it has. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that why there's um, manipulation of friends and family, because the abuser often gets them on an island, and then there's no way off of that island. I believe all in all, probably only, I say only, um, around a year or so. Well, I'd say it was physical for less than a year, but it was building up to that point. And then uh, it did get to a, to a point. There was one night where uh, he pinned her down in the kitchen and uh, grabbed a kitchen knife and, and put it on her neck and, and threatened to kill her. Somehow she, she did talk him out of that and they agreed to go to bed for the evening and, and go to work. And as soon as he went to work, that's when she packed up everything that she could at that moment and just got out. We did have a strong family support system. And uh, so she came to my parents first and um, she lived with us for quite a while. And she was still working at the time. You know, once again, in retrospect, it's hard to believe, but we just thought this was the process. You know, uh, you, you separate, you leave, nothing happened everything will work out fine. Um, and so that was the case. And then, you know, while she was living with us, there were attempts by him, of course, to reconcile, to work things out, give him a second chance and, and things like that. And uh, she continued to say no and wasn't budging on that. And that's when the attempts to reconcile and, and the asking became more threatening and frightening. It was in March of 1994. I was, of course, playing Nintendo after school. My dad came in to the bedroom after work, and uh, he said, like, pause it. We need to talk. And I knew it must be serious if he's interrupting my Nintendo game. And uh, so that's that was the first time in the moment that I realized something was wrong. And he, he just said that, that we had an order of protection against him, and Annie did as well. And the reason we had this order of protection was because he had made threats not just against her, but threats against our entire family. And he also reminded me that we need to remain vigilant because a piece of paper doesn't stop anything. 
and uh, he used a few crass <laughs> words to get his point through, but that a piece of paper is just a piece of paper, and uh, we need to remain vigilant. But that was the first step in furthering the divorce and, and the next steps in the process. Now looking back, it was kind of survival mode. Didn't realize at the time, and God bless my parents for making that as, as easy for a 13-year-old as you could imagine. But uh, we had known from his family that he, he started stalking her and in turn then stalking us. Yeah, it was 1994, it was before social media, before Facebook. Um, we were, you know, just kind of on our own. And so we, you know, we lived out in a cornfields, Morgan Township, and we knew that part of his routine would be just even parking in the cornfields and watching to see when she was coming in and when she was going. So at that moment, you know, I wasn't allowed to go outside and shoot hoops anymore. I wasn't allowed to be home alone anymore. Um, we would also, we would turn on the lights in the guest bedroom when she wasn't there to make him think that she was there so that he would, what's odd looking back, like we wanted him to stay watching the house because she wasn't there. Um, and so at that time, she started moving around to different family members' house. She would stay with us for a couple days. She would stay with a friend for a couple days. She would stay at the caring place. There was one confrontation where when my sister was staying at my grandparents' house, he knew that and, and showed up. And luckily around my grandparents' house is a lot of other family members that live, they live all along the same road. And they were all vigilant as well. They knew what he was driving and were on the lookout. And they noticed his vehicle pull up to my grandparents' house. And my sister happened to be in the house at that time. And one of my other uncles, her great uncle, um, came in very quickly and got... There was a moment he was between the back of his car and the front of my uncle's car. And my uncle said, you know, if you take another step, I'll crush you. And he just got back in his car and left. And we knew that point as well, like, okay, it, this is getting real. He's, he knows where she is and, and is following her. He had bought a van so he could l spend the night in his van. He also rented a, uh, like a storage unit uh, that was near my grandparents' house. And that's where he could set up shop as well. April 24th of 1994, um, I was coming out of Sunday school. My parents picked me up. Uh, when I got in the back seat, Annie was there, which I didn't, I wasn't aware that she was gonna be with us that day. And uh, we went to the Costa's grocery store on the north side of town, as we would normally do on a Sunday, grocery shop for the week. And uh, so we went inside, did our shopping, came out, and as we normally do, uh, my mom and Annie got into the car while my dad and I put the groceries in the back of the car. And uh, as soon as we closed the trunk, kind of turned to go to the passenger side, and he was standing there. He had like a green duffel bag, like an army bag, wrapped around his arm and hand. And uh, it was concealing a gun that he was pointing at us. So he just told us, get into the back seat. And uh, I'll admit, like, I kind of zoned out at that moment. And all I did was exactly what he said. I tried to get in the backseat of the car. And so I had popped the latch 
And in that moment, my mom had saw in the rearview mirror what was going on and she hit the automatic lock button. And like, I couldn't get in and I was just kind of like jamming on the door. And he knew he was that close to getting in, in the back seat. And so he kind of stopped paying attention, got in the moment and kind of pushed me in front a little bit and tried to get in. Well, he didn't realize my dad kind of snuck behind him. And my dad had been carrying legally uh, his own handgun for our protection. And so my dad got behind him and wrapped his arm around his neck and put a gun to his head and told him to drop the gun. So there was a, a brief moment of hesitation and eventually he dropped the gun. And so I was just kind of standing there at the uh, passenger side of the, of the car and my dad told me to go in and call 911. I went inside and like I said, being a, a 13 year old kid at this time, um, Casas had a bank up at the front of the store and those were the first like uh, official people that I saw and there, there was someone talking to the teller. So even at the time, I just waited politely until they were like done talking about their, their business and uh, the teller asked if they could help and I said, I need you to call 911. My dad has a gun to my brother-in-law's head. I ran back outside and my dad had moved him to the to the trunk of our car. My mom and sister had exited the car and were just standing there. There was talking going on. I don't even know what was said. And uh, I just kind of had emotional fatigue at that time. So I went down like three cars over and I just kind of got in a catcher's crouch and put my arms over my head and, and just sat there. I didn't know what to do. And it felt like minutes, but it was probably only a matter of seconds. But uh, I, I heard some commotion, and then I heard a gunshot. I just immediately ran back into the Casas vestibule and uh, sat on a bench. And I did hear another gunshot as I was running in that way. And uh, it was one of those moments like I knew I was supposed to be crying, but the emotions were, were too high. So I just kind of had my, my head in my hands, and I was sitting on a bench there in like the windowed vestibule. And then I heard some more screaming and that's when I looked out towards the car wash and I did, I saw him standing over my sister and uh, she was on her knees and he was up close to her. He shot her right in the head. After that moment, God bless this woman, I, I don't know who she is, but she was wearing a yellow sweater and uh, she grabbed me and she knew, she knew something was wrong, that I was involved, and uh, asked me that. So she kind of shuffled me into the store. And at that moment, you know, I didn't know still what was going on. Um, I didn't know if he was going to come after me or anything else like that. So she was shuffling me inside, kind of trying to hide me a little bit. And then, uh, then my dad had staggered into Costas and collapsed on the floor, and he was shot in the chest, and there was just blood everywhere. He was in critical condition for the the extent of that day and into the evening, um, fully recovered. My mom was shot as well. That was one of the, the gunshots, and she was shot in the arm, and she was in, in fair to good condition the entire time. Um, so after 
After I talked with the police briefly, uh, they did take me to the hospital. I was with my grandfather at the time as well, and uh, I got to see my mom in the emergency room, and, and she, was, she was okay. Um, I couldn't see my dad for a while because um, they were doing surgery on him for a while. I'll consider a, it a blessing is that my sister passed away, and she passed away fairly quickly. Um, she was alive still when the ambulance got there and would have never known it if it weren't for interviews and newspaper articles afterwards. But uh, she had told either the ambulance or one of the first responders, which, which were just people that were even coming through the car wash at the time, um, she kept asking about her little boy, and she never had a little boy. I was her little boy. As heartbreaking as it is, it still shows, you know, uh, what she was thinking about. It, I'm, I'm certainly glad to know it than to never know it. So he left the, he fled the scene immediately, and the police showed up very quickly from the 911 call. And there were multiple 911 calls, um, but they were in the area. They showed up very quickly. Um, he fled. He got in his vehicle and uh, took off, headed towards Washington Township area, headed east, uh, back roads, tried to evade the police, got in a shootout while driving, um, and eventually pulled off the side of the road and took his own life. One thing that we found out after the uh, you know, police investigation and everything else like that uh, happened and they examined the contents of his, of his van, and, you know, he, uh, he wanted to put her through as much pain as he felt that she put him through. And the, the way he was planning to do that was to uh, inflict pain upon us, and when I say us, my family in front of her. There were letters, there was food rations, there were handcuffs, there were um, ammunition, um, things of that nature, there, it was a, there was a plan to go out into the wilderness. His goal of that day was to abduct all of us and to kill my mom and my dad and me in front of her. While it's horrible and, it, and it's probably one of the most impactful things in my life, I realized like I've, I've been playing with house money since April 24th, 1994, you know, with, uh, with a simple, you know, my mom's locking of the door while I already had it clock, you know, who knows what would have happened if we would have got, all gotten into that car. It's, uh, it's, it's by no coincidence or stroke of luck that I guess I'm as uh, uh, well-adjusted as people say that I am. Um, I was, you know, my family's tremendous outside of my mom and dad, my cousins, my brother, uh, my aunts and uncles, and family that I ended up staying with after the event, friends I stayed with that I consider family. Um, but it was also the foundation that was laid before that, you know, they, they didn't start parenting me on this after it happened. They laid a significant foundation that I could deal with this. and. Uh, and a lot of that is predicated on, on faith. And, 
you know, I tell people all the time, if I didn't have faith, you know, in God, if I didn't have faith that I would see my sister again, I would, I would go crazy. I don't know how people that don't have faith deal, deal with things, even trivial things, um, without knowing there's a greater purpose or a greater understanding or uh, just anything greater at the end. And I will say, you know, as a kid, as a 13-year-old kid, I had questions of faith. We, I was raised going to Sunday school, never knew anything different. I had the same questions running it through a scientific filter of, oh, is this real? Could it be real? And uh, swear to God, um, you know, from the, when that moment happened, I don't know how to explain it, but I never had a doubt ever, ever again, still this day. And uh, with everything that's happened, I've never been angry at God. Uh, I felt very lucky, you know, I've, I am very lucky compared to what could have happened that day and what could have happened to other people and, and stuff like that. So um, that faith is what's there all the time. In a, in a dark room when you're going to bed, faith is always there. It's been a huge part of what's, what's got me through. The Caring Place in general, it's, it's a shelter for victims of domestic abuse. And, and when I say victims, you know, when most people think of victims of domestic abuse, they think of that primary victim. They think of the, the person that was struck by violence. Um, but they incorporate their, their mission with not only that primary victim, but if there's children involved, um, they bring them in, they give them a safe place to stay, um, provide food, provide counseling. Once things have gone down the path of where a spouse leaves another spouse, and especially if there's children, you know, there's been a lot of factors at hand, and they provide support. What I love about the Caring Place is they're, they're not just a handout. They don't just provide, you know, safe shelter for a couple days and then move you along. Um, they, they keep you there as long as they have room for as long as you need and to get you on your feet. And they provide, you know, the support, the knowledge, the education for you to get back on your feet because they don't want you to come back. You know, as much as they love you, they don't want you to come back. They want you to be fully uh, self-sustaining. I got involved because I struggled for a long time to figure out how to make a positive change. Um, my story is not one that's easily brought up amongst friends. It's not a, a casual bar conversation that uh, that just easily comes up. So I, I struggled for a long time of trying to figure out what to do to make this world a better place in, in the small way that I can and uh, learning from others. So I reached out to The Caring Place and uh, my wife Courtney and I um, we've been involved with their campaign to support the new shelter as well. Domestic violence is, is a community problem. It affects you whether you realize it or not. And uh, it's, a, it's a touchy subject and, and it's, it's very hard to help someone as an individual with this for a variety of reasons. And that's what's great about The Caring Place is with their resources, they know how to help. Everyone's situation is different, and and while there may be some similarities, if there's one thing I could say is that this is nothing to be ashamed of. This happens, as I said before, to 
to all people, all races, all genders, all classes, and it's nothing that anyone deserves. You don't have to go through this. No one, no one should go through this. And uh, it's important to take whatever steps you can to take care of yourself and to take care of those around you. As I shared in my story, there's so many more victims when domestic abuse happens, you know, and just think about it. You, you as a listener may think that you don't know anyone, think, and thankfully don't know anyone that's being uh, abused domestically. But the thing is, I guarantee you do. And they're your teachers, they're your friends. You know, none of my sister's friends knew anything was going on and would have never guessed. And uh, it's hard to provide that support. And a lot of times when it comes down to needing the care in place, it's because that's your last ditch effort. And that it truly could mean the difference between dying and surviving. And uh, the caring place currently operates out of a hundred plus year old building that is literally falling down upon itself. Um, there was a time even when my sister tried to stay there when she was left with no other options and she couldn't, they were full. That was 24, almost 25 years ago. And that, I hate to say it, but that need hasn't gotten any less, you know, and it was full then. So uh, they're in the process of building a new shelter and uh, are still raising funds for it. The administrative offices are separate from the shelter itself, and that's, that's not very efficient either. So they're lucky to uh, be building another shelter and need all the support they can to get it all under one roof. They're a great place. They're there for our community, and they could use our support. My dad has, I will say, lived a rough physical life, whether it be uh, farming, working in the mills, uh, car accidents, being shot. Um, so he has since had a couple strokes, and, and look, there's no medical correlation at all, but I just tell him, like, your body's been through too much. Something had to give. And uh, But so he he's suffered a few strokes, and, and his Body is impaired a little bit. He doesn't get around as much as as he used to. He does. He can't talk as well as he did. Um, but now, maybe even more than before, when he does have something to say, um, it's usually profound. And actually, I should say it's sometimes it's profound. It's usually very funny, and uh, it, you know he he solves a, a lot with humor and and makes you see the the bright side of things. I will say, my dad, 1994. I was very concerned seeing him in ICU, but he was able to talk and everything else like that. And they had him stable, but he was still in intensive care. And his uh, his his gunshot wound sprung a leak while I was in there. And it was luckily after we had talked a little bit, and you know it, it started to spurt. And the the nurse immediately like grabbed gauze and applied pressure, and then like jumped on top of him to, to put her whole body pressure on it. And that's when another nurse started to shuffle me out of the room. And my dad, in, in his glory, says, please don't tell your mom that I had a nurse in bed with me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I'll still remember that as, as like one of the best and worst times of my life because it was horrible for all the, the reasons behind it. But I knew at that moment, even though like I just saw blood squirting out of my dad, 
I knew he was gonna be all right, you know. Um, so we've always been a family full of uh, humor as, as well in that hit spot. Once again, that was Eric Nicholson, who we'd like to thank for sharing his story. And we'd like to thank you for listening. As always, write a review, tell a friend, and send us in your stories. So Eric mentioned The Caring Place, which is a facility in Northwest Indiana. For more information about them, including how to help, you can visit them at thecaringplacenwi.org. If you're not local, but still in North America, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, 1-800-799-7233. We have links to both sites in our show notes. I'm Aaron Freinberger, and this is State Road 49. Freinberger, Matt Willingham, and Garrett Schultz. It is executive produced by the Heartland Christian Center. Visit their website at hcc3d.com. That is hcc3d.com. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Garrett Schultz. Music by Thomas Kilabas. For more information about the program, visit us at facebook.com slash stateroad49. This program was produced in Valparaiso, Indiana.